Hello, 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 and welcome to A Country Podcast, which is the podcast that aims to educate and entertain just as much as A Country Practice did when we were young and impressionable in the 80s and early 90s. I'm playwright and journalist Melanie Tate, and with me is podologist, or should I say podographer, or should I say podiontologist, podcast producer. Kimothy Lester. Kim, do you mind me calling you Kimothy? It's fine by me. I just think it works. I like it. <laughs> I think it really works for you. Kim, I'm pretty excited about the episode we're watching today. Oh, I know you are. You've been wanting to do this episode pretty much since the day we hatched this baby pot of ours. Yeah, we're looking at season eight for part of that is called Sophie parts one, two, three, and four. Drugs and AIDS come to the valley and a country practice is ready to educate the masses about them. Yep. And later we'll chat to a country practice's most decorated writer, Judith Cahoon. Oh, most decorated writer and renowned assassin. She broke Australia's <laughs> heart when Molly died. She devastated us when Alex and Terence lost their baby. Oh. And spoiler alert, she killed off poor old Sophie. Yeah. We're going to chat to her a bit later. Before we get to the recap... You've had a very exciting couple of weeks in the world of podcasting. Do tell us all of your achievements. Well, they're not just my achievements. I think you need to take some credit for these achievements. As you know, this is not an exclusive relationship, you and I. As you know, I produce a few <laughs> podcasts for a living. And one of them has been nominated for an Australian Podcast Award, Ooh. which is so exciting. Margin Notes, hosted by a couple of awesome, awesome human beings in Canberra, Zoya Patel and Yen Erickson. It's one of those gigs that it's just such a pleasure to be a part of it. It combines memoir because they're both writers and that's done to sort of nice music and I sort of mix all of that for them. And then it's just them shooting the breeze about the stuff that was in the memoir, but from their perspectives, which are really intersectional perspectives. And so it's a fun but smart, an interesting podcast. So I'm so proud that it's been nominated. I just feel like it couldn't have happened to a better pair of hosts and um, very glad to be part of that as well. Well, it could happen to a better pair of hosts. Well, actually, yes, it could happen to a better pair of hosts, but we weren't, we weren't eligible. Not better, but equally as good. Exactly. We weren't eligible this year. <laughs> yeah. Next year, <laughs> just you wait. We're coming for you, Australian Podcast <laughs> Awards. So there's that. And then the other really exciting thing that's happened, you know, I work on Seriously Social. Yes. Which is hosted by Ginger Gorman. Yes. It's made by the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. And for their new season, they have completely revamped the way it sounds. It used to be a straight interview show. I'm so proud of how it sounds and takes a lot for me to say I'm very proud of my work. But anyway, I'm very proud of how it sounds. But also just everybody working on it has done a fantastic job. The first episode is all about the Palace Papers. And so Whitlam, we know you have you love Whitlam. I love Gough Whitlam and I really love something particularly Whitlamy about this very sexy episode, Kim. You've got his son on it. Yeah. What a huge guest. Anthony Whitlam, QC who was part of the court case to have the Palace Papers released. Basically, the premise of this episode is that the historian who uncovered the existence of these letters that had been written between the Governor-General of the time, John Kerr, and Buckingham Palace were put under embargo by John Kerr. But even after John Kerr's death, the Palace 
has been saying the Australian people cannot see this. And the National Archives fought on the Queen's behalf, not on Australia's behalf. So it's such a fascinating story. It's so good. Congratulations, Kim. It's so They're both really great podcasts. I feel like with both podcasts, I always learn something that I can take with me into the world that's valuable, you know, in a really entertaining way. So... Cheers to you, Kim and Zoya and Yen and Ginger and Sue. You guys rock. And Bonnie, thank you. So anyway, the point being, not only do we make this podcast, we produce podcasts, you and me, Melanie Tate. So if you want to make a podcast with us, let us know. Oh, my gosh, yeah. If you want to make a podcast, we are the people to help, aren't we? Yeah. And if you want someone to teach you how to make a podcast, also, we are the people to help. Anyway, this could just... Go on forever. <laughs> Should we get on with the show? Yes. Let's go to Sophie, part one, part two, part three, part four. Kim, what is it all about? Sophie is Terence's daughter. She has been staying with Terence and Alex in the valley. That's all prior to these episodes. Right before this episode begins, Terence receives a phone call from St. Vincent's Hospital. Sophie is in hospital having suffered a drug overdose. He goes to Sydney and the first Two episodes are Terence in Sydney, in the cross, wandering around trying to find her, going to Wayside Chapel and talking to the counsellors there, going to St. Vincent's Hospital, going all around the cross where there's needles everywhere and prostitutes everywhere and very young girls asking him if he wants to have a good time and it's all very devastating and depressing. Kids come here by the hundreds, not users even, not all of them. They just come here for the buzz. If they want to disappear, they can Easiest thing in the world. You don't belong here if somebody wants you. Meanwhile, Alex is back in Wandon Valley holding all of the, you know, medical balls in the air for everybody. So she's running the hospital, she's running the clinic, but also she has no idea if her marriage is secure. She's very upset about the impact that this massive problem in Terence's life, the impact that that's having on her and her marriage and their marriage. That's pretty much one and two. Three and four, Sophie comes back to the valley. She gets clean remarkably quickly and remarkably well, I've got to say. (laughs) She doesn't seem to suffer any of the five days of hell that you hear about with um, heroin withdrawals. I mean, she does have some pretty hardcore um, black roots in her peroxide blonde (laughs) hair. Yes, but very few sweats and doesn't seem to have any diarrhea. No sweats, no shakes. (laughs) Oh, no, she does say that she has diarrhea. She does have diarrhea. Yeah, she's got diarrhea. Don't worry. But that could be the AIDS. Oh, you've just... Spoiler! (laughs) Spoiler! (laughs) Sophie has AIDS. She's diagnosed in Wandon Valley. (laughs) Sophie? He's telling me that I'm AIDS positive. I had an AIDS test in London before I left, and I've known about it since then. That's when the relationship between Alex and Sophie begins to turn around, because Alex starts to look at her as a patient, and she starts to become a caregiver, and they grow closer as a result. Unfortunately, although she seems to be positive and improving and on the road to some kind of a normal life for whatever life she has left. Unfortunately, her good friend Paul from King's Cross turns up and they go on a little drive together and they take some heroin. And as often happens when people get clean and then use again, 
Sophie dies of an overdose. It's heartbreaking. It really is. And there's a devastating scene at the end where Dr. Terence discovers her dead body, tries to revive her, can't, and breaks down in this kind of Wandon Valley hovel where his daughter's died. It's really upsetting. And then the cliffhanger at the end of the episode, the funeral happens, he's at her gravesite reading a piece of Sophie's memoir, and then he packs his bag and he leaves. And he doesn't tell Alex where he's going, and we don't know where he's going or for how long he'll be gone. There's lots of emotions in this episode. There is a lot to unpack. What would you like to discuss first? How about the visit to the cross? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Watching Terence really outside of his comfort zone, you know, the one thing that happens in The Cross is that we discover that Sophie really is a number. She's just another person who's lost to this addiction and to this world. One thing that struck me about it is when I was 14, I used to have this habit of running away from home a lot. And (laughs) (laughs) funny now, not so so funny for my parents. And uh, this one time I ran away, I actually didn't run run away, I just wagged school. I intended on coming back, but didn't and was overnight for a few nights. Mm. And my father... That's been terrifying for them. Terrifying. But I was organised. Like I had a, I had a, the central private hotel on Elizabeth Street booked. I had all... I just didn't want to go on the school camp. There's a, there's a, but did your parents know all of this? No, they didn't know any of this. It's been terrifying for they them. They just thought they'd drop me off at the school camp. But I went oh. off to I went to Sydney for three days instead of going to the school right. camp. Right. So they thought you were on school yeah, camp. Yeah, but I got busted like a day in. So my father went straight to the city and was in King's Cross looking for me, walking up and down, looking, you know, thinking God knows what had happened. And it's this great fabled family story about how many people came on to him and the McDonald's and all this kind of stuff. And I watched it and rang my dad and said, you've got to watch this. Like, this is how I imagine your life. And he said it was exactly that. (laughs) It was exactly what he went through over those nights. Only like, thank God, I wasn't a drug addict. And I was found the next day and, you know, taken back to the country. But watching this and watching a father in such a desperate state looking for her, I just... The whole time we're watching this, you just feel like there are no winners with drug addiction like it was just a world of pain that we watched with mm. Terence and with Sophie yeah. in that world. Why don't we move on to Alex seeing where they're now and Alex's reaction to all of this. So Alex, young wife of Dr. Terence, stepmother of Sophie, take me through what you think of the way that she reacts during this these episodes. And actually beyond, in the episodes beyond, she she holds on to this attitude for a good, like I I kept watching the episodes until Terence came back. I think Shane Porteous in real life probably took his kids to Vanuatu or something like that. (laughs) Because he was gone for a few episodes. He was gone for so long. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of Alex's behaviour? And what what did it make you think of Alex as a character? She's an interesting character because I really liked Di Smith, who we're interviewing in our next episode. But I found Alex is... I I think she's very typical of how a strong female professional was represented in the 80s. I think Vicky was like this as well. They're kind of cut from the same cloth Yeah. where they kind of have to be almost edging on mean to get their point across. And I think Alex can be a bit that way. She can be a bit angry at times. And I think that we've kind of worked out that good, strong feminist characters don't have to be quite so angry. 
And, you know, it's funny, I watched a couple of these episodes with my mum who was visiting and her commentary on Alex was, I didn't like the way she was pouting all the time. And I completely agree, but I also think it comes down to age. So how old do you think Alex is? Maybe 30? I I think I worked out once that the age difference between her and Terence is 15 years. So he's 46. I think she's about 31. Okay. So you think back to when you were 31. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you would have had the life experience and the patience and the diplomacy and compassion to feel entirely secure in a relationship with someone who had been married previously and had adult children. I don't know that I would have been. When I was 31, I did go out with somebody with two, not adult children, but with two children who'd been previously married before. Mm. And I come from, and I'm sure you come from a family that's like this too, Kim, but I was really raised in that somebody's children come first out of everything and if somebody ever puts you before their children, they're actually not a good person anyway. So I think I can pretty much say if I was 31 and my older husband's daughter was a drug addict and dying of HIV AIDS, I would step aside. You know what I mean? Like just step aside and let him do what he needed to do because like she's dying for a start. So she's actually not going to be around. And at the time when we consider what HIV AIDS was then, she was not going to be around for much longer anyway you'd be putting your head forward to how am I going to deal with the grief that's going to come? You know, how am I going to be a good partner there? So I actually think Alex's behaviour is despicable throughout the entire thing, except for when she goes into doctor mode. (laughs) But she still is, she's kind of a bit judgy. And I don't know why she is because there but for the grace of whatever, Sophie is just as well educated as Alex. She's from, you know, that sort of same socioeconomic background. Mm. It's just that she happened to try heroin once and get addicted to it Alex didn't you know like it just I don't I don't know what are you what are you see you're always kinder than me I'm, I'm a bit too black and white over those things look I, I definitely I don't like to be black and white about anything but I actually didn't love the way that Terence spoke to Alex a lot of times as well I think a lot of her pouting was not done towards Terence I think it was done to Batron Sloan I think a lot of it her complaining wasn't burdened onto Terence she didn't treat Sophie the best, but also Sophie had stolen from them. And when Alex, mm. in the previous episode, before the Sophie episodes, Alex said to Terence, I think she's using it again. And he just refused to believe it. And they had a big fight about that. And so I think probably despicable is mm. too strong a word for it, but I didn't love the way that mm. she acted either. But I also didn't love the way that Terence was to her. And I didn't like the way Sophie was to her. I think, I think the person who made the most sense in this episode was Matron Sloan. Her advice to Alex was delivered so diplomatically and with so much kindness, but essentially it was pull your head in. He's got to deal with his daughter. Mm. This is really an episode where Matron Sloan and Esme Watson shine so brightly. One of the parts of the story that's very affecting about this, Sophie's a brat, like, and she's in the midst of either addiction or withdrawal. We don't really, we only get to see her as sober, lovely Sophie Mm. for about five minutes of the show. Yeah. And at one stage when she's just found out that she's got HIV AIDS, she comes out to the, Esme's putting the clothes on the line because she's the housekeeper of Camelot at the time. Mm. And she's out putting clothes on the line and Sophie comes and tells her in a way that really scares her. And, you know, Esme is, is the representative of that part of the community that hears the word AIDS and freaks out. Yeah. And 
the other thing about Esme's freak out is she she just sort of is flummoxed, gets mm. the washing and goes inside. She says nothing that is nasty, nothing no. that's kind of confronting. And then a little bit later in the episode, she apologises to Sophie by bringing her flowers in the hospital and, and offering to help her any way mm. that she can. It's yeah. really, really beautiful. And touching her hand, which I think was a very symbolic gesture. Yes. So it was, I don't know, I feel like they're the stars of the show. Mm. Sophie and Alex are kind of the petulant children of the show. Mm. So, Kim, obviously this one is sick, thick, fat with social history of the time. What are you going to focus on? Oh, I'm actually not even sure if I've decided yet. (laughs) And we're talking about it in less than five seconds. No, honestly, it is impossible to cover it all. So in a moment, I'll talk a bit about the civil disobedience that drastically reduced the rate of HIV AIDS in Australia. I'm really excited about this, Kim, because I'm not even kidding. The way that the Australian medical community dealt with HIV AIDS in the 80s is one of my favourite Australian stories of all time. And I'm really excited about us talking about this. It is fascinating. So, Kim, 1988. This four-parter went to air sometime in August in 1988. I actually don't have the dates on IMDb. Big year for an eight-year-old with no real understanding of the uh, impacts of colonialism. Same. Little Kimmy Lester was collecting bicentennial commemorative coins and feeling very jealous of her friend Kate, who got to go to Expo 88 in Brisbane. How did you not go? You're in Queensland. What sort of parents do you have? I have parents who were a single income family with four kids and didn't do stuff like go to Expo 88 or the show. Fair play because we we would like we were just we felt like we were sort of so out of it not going to Expo 88 yeah. from New South Wales. My god, I can't oh. My mum listens to this podcast. So I feel like I need to say I did not want for anything. I had a very privileged upbringing. It just happened to be that because they were a single income family with four no kids. No Expo 88. We didn't go to Expo 88. Maybe that's not the reason. Maybe they just are not into Expos. Yeah. You know what we should start saying when we say bless the Lesters? Let's just go Blesters. 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 Love it. Blesters. What I did not know, Mel, was on the 26th of January, more than 40,000 Aboriginal people and non-Indigenous supporters staged the largest march ever held in Sydney up to that time to protest Mm -hmm. the celebration of the colonisation of Australia that is Australia Day and bring to the fore the injustice, suffering and dispossession of Aboriginal people as a result of colonialism. The actor and activist Gary Foley was one of the speakers. He said, let's hope Bob Hawke and his government gets this message loud and clear from all these people here today. It's so magnificent to see black and white Australians together in harmony. This is what Australia could and should look like. And Gary went on to do a stint in a country practice a year later in 1989. Elsewhere in Australia, Home and Away was giving Neighbours a run for its money after launching in January. The new Parliament House was opened by the Queen in May. And in August 1988, Al-Qaeda was formed by Osama bin Laden. That didn't happen in Australia, so I should have worded that differently. (laughs) Wow, big year. And since I'm not totally sure what date these episodes went to air, I'm going to name two songs that were number one from August to September 1988. Age of Reason by John Farnham had three weeks. Oh, 
Great. And Perfect by Fairground Attraction, which was actually turned up in my Spotify playlist this morning. Spent four weeks on the top of the Aussie charts. Both great songs. I love that song, Perfect. What great songs. It's got to be. Yep. Be. I also love The Age of Reason and John Farnham, and I think if we ever wanted to do a special episode on John Farnham, I'd be open to that. Surely he's been in the country practice. Surely he was in a country practice at least. Oh, once. how could he not have been? I'm sure. I remember he was on the Late Show. <laughs> I was a big Late Show fan. Don't you remember he used to fill in for Daryl Summers on Hey Hey It's Saturday? We weren't really a Hey Hey family, to be honest. <laughs> the Blesters. You guys are so classy. The Blesters. They don't go to Expo eighty eight and they don't watch Hey Hey. What a classy lot. Unlike the Tates, who all thought Dickie Knee was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh God. All right. So let's talk about the cross. Both Wayside Chapel and St. Vincent's Hospital played a massive part in the politics of curbing drug use and in particular needle sharing. And Dr. Terence went to St. Vincent's Hospital and to Wayside Chapel. So I want to tell you about Dr. Alex Wodak from St. Vincent's Hospital. Now, if you're into the medical history, I'm sure you're going to be into this one. Over at St. Vincent's Hospital, Dr. Alex Wodak AM was the director of the Alcohol and Drug Service from 1982 to 2012. Dr. Wodak has been a massive figure in the harm minimization movement, which focuses more on treating addiction than prohibition. I found an article that he wrote, strangely for an obstetrics publication called ONG Magazine. It's called Standing Up to the Grim Reaper, The Early Days of AIDS, And it sums up this period of time so perfectly that I'm just actually going to read it, parts of it to you. Great. I will never forget the first case of AIDS admitted under my care at St. Vincent's Hospital in the mid-1980s, a young gay New Zealander who had come to Sydney after several years living in the USA. Bit by bit, the nature of this epidemic became clearer. The magnitude of the threat was uncertain, but it was clear from the outset that potentially this was a serious threat to the health, well-being and economy of Australia. If anything, the early measurements turned out to be far too optimistic. The media largely ignored the epidemic until the Grim Reaper advertisements began appearing in April 1987. Though intended to persuade the then Treasurer Paul Keating to allocate sufficient funds for AIDS in the next budget, the advertisements shifted AIDS from small paragraphs buried on an inside page of our newspapers to headlines on the first page. The Treasurer put aside sufficient funds in the 1987 budget for a vigorous national response to HIV. St Vincent's Hospital was in the epicentre of this new epidemic. It was clear that there was a frightening risk of a cascade of HIV infections starting among gay men, spreading from gay men who use drugs to their heterosexual counterparts through needle sharing, and then spreading to the general community through sexual contact. Once the genie was out of the bottle, getting it back in again was going to be a nightmare. I spent sleepless nights worrying about this. A group of healthcare workers and people who used drugs started meeting regularly to discuss what we should do. I just, I love that line. A group of healthcare workers and people who used drugs started meeting regularly to discuss what oh, we should do. It's such a great story. Isn't it? Anyway, so, yeah. yeah. It was clear that starting a program to swap sterile needles and syringes uh, for used injecting equipment was the most urgent priority. I wrote many submissions to the New South Wales Health Department, begging to be allowed to start a needle syringe program. Later, a friend working in the health department was asked to clean up some shelves and came across 13 separate submissions written by me. All had been declined or ignored. 
We eventually realised that the New South Wales Health Department was never going to approve a needle syringe program before the epidemic had started. So we had to resort to civil disobedience. The first needle and syringe was handed out on the 13th of November 1986. It was a big decision for every member of the group. My regret is that we did not start this earlier. Now, almost 20 years later, the prevalence of HIV among Australians who inject drugs and have no other risk factors is still less than 2%. Half the needle syringe programs in the world were started by civil disobedience. Some countries were not as lucky, and with no needle syringe programs and minimal or no methadone program, HIV spread among and from people who inject drugs to the general community. In Thailand, the prevalence of HIV among people who inject drugs increased from less than 1% to more than 40% in 10 months in 1987. Within five years in the northwest of the country, one in 12 pregnant women and one in six million male military recruits had HIV infection. That could also have been Australia's story. Amazing. We led the world. Yeah. The world. Like, you know how usually America or the UK leads yeah. the world in, or, or Europe in, in sort of medical things we led the and it was those people that met in Darlinghurst and King's Cross and those doctors and I I didn't know that drug users were there as well that's incredible it's amazing isn't it it's just such an incredible story I can't believe nobody has made a mini series of it yet yeah right Mel you had four episodes worth of guest actors and creatives to research this week so who is on your where are they now listicle this episode contains the debut the ACP debut of the young woman who sang this 1980s or 90s hit. And also went on to host Australia's Funniest Home Videos for 87 years. And I'm not even fo- <laughs> I'm not even focusing on her, Kim. That is how exciting this episode is. There are loads of interesting people in Sophie's part one, two, three, and four. Katrina Sedgwick, who plays Sophie, for example, she's now the CEO and director of the Australian Centre for Moving Image, Acme in Melbourne. Before that, was head of arts TV at the ABC. I once had a meeting in her office sitting on a very uncomfortable milk crate as it goes. So we're not we're not choosing her. Times are tough at the ABC. Yeah, my butt is still sore from that meeting, so we're not talking about (laughs) Katrina Sedgwick. Part four sees the very first appearance of none other than Australia's 90s sweetheart, actor, singer, and Australia's funniest home video host, Tony Piran. But, Kim, I want to talk about someone whose life left a really, really big mark on Australian TV and whose story I think might inspire you and I to actually get off our saw milk crated butts and <laughs> reboot yeah it reboot a country practice today we're going to talk about the writer of Sophie episode 2 Tony Morfitt now is that a familiar name to you at all kim yeah i don't know why though there's sort of no way that if you were watching tv in the 80s 90s and 2000s and you're paying attention, you wouldn't have seen his name in the front credits of a lot right. of things. Uh, so Tony Morfitt was born on the 10th of March, 1938 in Granville, Sydney. He grew up in what sounds like a really happy home. He had a teacher mum called Olive. Oh, good name. Good name, who taught him all about storytelling and a dad who worked in the rag trade. 
Apparently, Tony Morfitt was very, very tall, as tall as David Williamson, which is very, very tall indeed. Now, as young men who were good at telling stories often did, he started his career as a copy boy for Sydney's Daily Telegraph. But it wasn't too long until he moved to, Kim, you're going to enjoy this, he moved to the ABC, <laughs> where, <laughs> where he joined what was then called the Talks Department. Did they give him an actual chair to sit on or was he also on a milk crate? (laughs) He would have been given a chair and a bloody ashtray and a tea lady (laughs) coming past. They had a tea lady at the ABC in Sydney then called Dot Strong. This is a true story. And she would come by, yeah, and give them tea and bloody cakes. And they named a terrace after it. Yeah, exactly, with a very good vegetable garden. (laughs) Anyway, so... He was at the ABC for a while. He produced interviews for the ABC for 10 years in radio and TV, just like us, Kim, just like oh, us. So there's time for us yet. There's time for us. Over the over those 10 years, though, oh. he wrote three novels, including one he, this is while he's at the ABC producing interviews and doing things, and one of them sold in America. So he's like, I'm out of here. I'm going yeah. freelance. See you later, ABC. Up yours and your bloody milk crates. <laughs> I'm out. So off he goes, you know, into freelance life and one of the biggest Australian screenwriting careers in history happens, Kim. Certainly one that shows that Tony Morfitt was an absolute story machine. He worked on a lot of TV series, The Sullivans, Patrol Boat with our mate James Davin, ABC's The Winners. Do you remember that series, Kim, when we were kids? There were sort of singular stories about teenagers Justine Clark was in one called Princess Kate or something and she played this adopted girl finding out she was adopted. Nicole Kidman was in one where she played a track star. Like they oh were so good and they'd play them every this few years. Totally passed me by. Like they obviously made about 10 years before right. our age and they mm-hmm. would replay them and I think I just saw them when they were replayed but I loved them. Um, so he wrote one of those. There were about six of them. And of course – a country practice. Now, a country practice, which is by no means the highlight of his career, but according to our most unreliable of sources, IMDb, he wrote 18 <laughs> episodes of a country practice. When Tony Morfitt's career is really exciting is with this, Kim. We all know the 80s and the early 90s were great because of a country practice on TV, obviously. But another reason, Kim, they were great for me as a TV viewer and what I really remember is the miniseries. I had an auntie and uncle that had taped everything. So they taped Bodyline and they taped the Shirley and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so we would watch them over and over yep. and over. like they would, And Vietnam and Bangkok Hilton, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Anyway, Tony Morfitt wrote... The Shirley, The Dirtwater Dynasty, Bangkok Hilton. Oh, wow. Tracks of Glory. And he didn't stop there, Kim. He kept writing TV. He co-created Blue Healers, Water Rats. (laughs) He kept writing novels and screenplays. He had a film directed by Peter Weir, who, of course, directed Dead Poets Society and everything else. And he had another film that starred Brooke Shields in it. Wow. His website is still live. It's TonyMorfitt.com and it's real evidence of what a story machine Tony Morfitt was. There's this brilliant and beautiful part of the website I really love and I find really inspiring that I'd love to read to you in his words, uh-huh. if that's okay, Kim. He says, and this is at the bottom of his bio or at the, on the homepage, like he's said a bit about himself. And then he says, I 
like all writers, have a bottom drawer containing projects which for one reason or another have not reached production but which, to the writer's admittedly biased mind, are worthy of consideration. So by all means, check out my CV which includes Water Rats and Bangkok Hilton <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just added that, by the, by the way, that was my voice, yeah, not yeah, Tony yeah, Morfitt. Yeah. So let's go back to Tony <laughs> Morfitt. <laughs> and use this website to contact my agents, but I invite you to spend some time checking out the section I have named Bottom Drawer. There may be programs there which could be of interest. Supporting material is available on request. Now, it's still there, Kim, all these great story ideas from this Amazing. superb story mind. Tony Morfitt died two years ago at the age of 80 and was survived by his wife, the artist Inga Hunt, and his six children and 11 grandchildren. What wow. a life and what a contribution. He sounds like the Aaron Sorkin of Australia. Yes, doesn't he? In terms of yeah. just prolific writing success stories. Yeah, and able to sort of judge the zeitgeist of what people mm. want to see and watch. And, you know, he was obviously somebody who was listening to what was going on around him and you probably could never tell him a secret because it would end up a TV show. But, <laughs> yeah, like what an amazing guy. So that is our person that we're looking back on today, Kim, Tony Morford. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kim. We are going to talk now to Judith Cahoon, the great serial murderer, uh, who we like very much and we hope she's not offended by us calling her a serial killer. Yeah. I'm Judith Cahoon and uh, I was one of the team of writers on a country practice and I was there for almost the duration, everything but the first few weeks really. And I wrote um, a prolific number of scripts. So that's actually one thing we need to get you to clear up, Jude, because IMDB says that you wrote 69 when in fact you wrote more than 100. It was 100. I remember the hundreds. I got some beautiful jewellery for that. And um, I did hint that, you know, it was worth a little something. <laughs> and, um, and, and Jim Devon came good. Did you get to know the characters by actually being around them in those trips to Sydney or, or did you get to know them through watching the television and connecting with them that way? Watching them, really. We didn't have a lot to do with the actors. Jim would occasionally plan a little get-together and have drinkies and was all supposed to be um, very civilised and they'd talk to us about what they didn't like and <laughs> we listened. And uh, <laughs> I love actors, you know, I admire them enormously, but they always know more about their character than the person who created it, you know. So sometimes it got to be a little bit tricky Especially the occasion we decided that we'd all have daiquiris and <laughs> this was not such a good idea. And by the third or fourth, everyone was getting very honest. <laughs> so we didn't do that again. <laughs> but mainly, I mean, we got on with them well. We learnt about them by seeing how they interpreted what we'd given mm -hmm. them and we'd adjust things over time. And a lot of the characters changed enormously. I mean, Joyce Jacobs is the classic example. Mm. She becomes the heart and soul of Wandon Valley, doesn't she? Well, she does in many ways, mm. yeah. I remember her in an episode I wrote where Sophie dies and she mm. became so, when you compare her in episodes like that to the 
original just town gossip sort of mm. almost nasty, not really because no very few people are nasty in the country practice, but but not very likable person and she was so she was so likable and empathetic and yeah, that yeah. it was mm. um, it was such a far cry and she'd come such a long journey. We're watching random points in the series. We're not watching it chronologically. And this no, week, no, well, it'd take you a very long time. Yes, yes, and and my children are already sick of me spending too much time yes. <laughs> working. But um, so this week I watched an episode in series two, which is about a young Indigenous girl comes into the practice and seems to have some evidence of child abuse. Simon can't quite work out if she's being abused or if she just has uh, some kind of condition. And Esme's in the waiting room and says, I mean, it's not overtly racist, but it's essentially people like that shouldn't be allowed to breed sort of comment. And then I just watched the Sophie episodes today and her tolerance and her care and her thoughtfulness for Sophie is just so beautiful. Is that because of what you as writers noted about Joyce Jacobs as a person or is it something that developed in Esme as a character? Well, it's something we noticed about her skill as an actor and her ability to show that side of the character. That There was so much more there and we chose to exploit it Um because she could bring so much more to it than we were using, you know, and it would have been a terrible shame not to. Mm. Can I ask about that episode? It is a long time ago, but one of the things that struck me about the Sophie episodes is how Sophie herself as a character wasn't the cliche of what a drug addict was mm. in those days. So she's mm. a professional woman. She's middle class. She, yeah. We know she's had a big life. In the story room, in creating that storyline, was that mm. all very much developed and, and discussed and debated? I can't remember, but I've done personally a lot of research into drug use and and so had my husband um, who did a, a film with Molly Meldrum called On a Slide Going Down. Hmm. So I can't remember who had what input into that. Mm-hmm. But I was certainly aware of it and also from personal knowledge, unfortunately, from friends um, mm-hmm. that you know, it knows no boundaries. It doesn't, and to use some homeless kid would have been just another cliche, really. Mm, yeah. I think it would have been a terrible shame if we were going to do a story on addiction and HIV and all of that mm. to show it as as somebody, you know, who was sleeping in the gutter. It mm. can affect anybody, any family any person. We tried to avoid cliches in that show as Mm, much as we possibly could. That sort of brings us to a good stage of asking you about writing deaths because, Jude, what, just watching those Sophie episodes, I just mm. had it in my head for some reason that Sophie was around for eight or nine months and I started watching, you know, the introduction of Sophie. It got to part four and it said, written by Judith Cahoon, I thought, oh, my God, they're going to kill her off. I just knew when I saw your <laughs> name, <laughs> when your name in the credits, I'm like, I'm not ready for this yet. I thought this was months away. No, I'm not ready. Why were you brought in for the for the deaths? I mean, was it because? Oh, look, yeah, I tell, don't can you tell know. us about I, that? 
I did do a nice death, apparently, or so Jim said. I was known as the Queen of Death at one stage. It's not really a title I particularly wanted. I guess I did a good death. I'd always done a good death. Even back in Bellbird days, I got the deaths. Maybe I should have worked in a funeral parlour. You know, I killed Molly's baby and I killed Molly and I killed Sophie and I killed... Terence's wife, I can't remember her name even. And um, <laughs> But that was the one that broke the camel's back. I, I said at one stage, I, I'm not doing any more deaths, you know, my computer's rusting. And the next time I went up to Sydney, or, you know, a few weeks later, I arrived and Jim was out on the water doing a blue water classic, so he was in the middle of the ocean somewhere and couldn't be contacted. And I discover that I'm slotted to kill Alex or Alex's baby or whatever it was. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. Someone else can do it. No, no. And Lynn Bayona said, no, no, Jude, you, you'll do it beautifully. You, you can do it. And I said, I'm not doing it. And there was a big thing. And finally, Bill Searle, who was the editor, I think, at the time, said, why don't you ask them for a dozen good red and so you'll do it then. <laughs> so I thought that was a good idea. So I, I said, I'll do it for a dozen hill of grace, and um, which was pretty demanding. And <laughs> truckload of hill of grace from Adelaide had been overturned, and there was a shortage of it in Sydney, and they had to go <laughs> six or eight wine outlets. <laughs> To find a dozen, <laughs> and I said, "I'm not starting until it's here." <laughs> anyway, the jury arrived. I don't know what expense because it was very expensive even back then. And I got the dozen hill of grace, and I killed the baby. <laughs> <laughs> I. <laughs> I got a dozen heel of grace and I killed the baby. I think it's probably the headline of the whole episode, Jude. Oh, dear. I'm starting to feel like a murderess. I actually think that that speaks to your ability to connect to that raw emotion that comes with grief because it is almost like entrusting you with a funeral, like a family that's grieving and trusting you to take care of them mm. and hold their hand through this event. Mm. That's essentially what... I guess the producers wanted you to do in yeah. taking Australia through these these huge deaths. Yeah, well, Molly's death was different. We all did plot that very carefully. So a lot of people had input into that and I just had to go away and, you know, put it together. So that was, um, apart from the fact that we were all weeping while we did mm. it, because everyone loved Molly, you know, and it mm. was very sad and a lot of people could relate to it. And, mm. you know, somebody young with very small children dying like that, it's, it's you know. But then when they, I got asked to do the bloody poem, that was the... Hmm. That was <laughs> so can you tell us about that? The episode of the block was in production and um, and I got a phone call from Lynn Bayonis, the script producer I think it was a Thursday night and she said I've got a little favor to ask and she said we just wanted a little poem for Bob to read out over the closing titles to sort of finish it all off you know 
just a nice little poem about Molly and what she meant to everybody. And I said, right, when do you want it back? She said, Monday, you'll do a wonderful job. Thanks, Judy. <laughs> so that was my weekend gone. I thought, what on earth am I going to write? You know, how am I going to do it? But anyway, I've got it done and it's still banging around the ether. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back on that time, when you look back on those 100 episodes and mm. killing off Molly, killing off Sophie, but also the, all those other wonderful episodes you wrote, what's your enduring memory or legacy or, or feeling about a country practice? From a writing point of view, it was some of the happiest times of, you know, of my working life, absolutely. It was such fun. It really mm. was such fun. Can you imagine that being your legacy as a TV writer? I love the wine story. I just love how she got herself a case of wine out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so great. <laughs> Let's go fashions of the field. All right. Sophie deserves an honourable mention for mm. all of the running that she did in stilettos. <laughs> with great, a lot of running. Great dotty stockings. You know those great <laughs> 80s yes. stockings with dots on them? Oh, I've got a pair of 80s dot stockings oh, now. Amazing. Not that I need them anymore, but I used to wear them in Canberra. Amazing. My pick is Alex's dress in episode one. It's kind of like a dark blue, black kind of triangular in that classic 80s triangular shape that dresses wear with the big shoulders and it's kind of tight around the knees and she's got this thick black belt and that's very angular as well and Di Smith pulls it off. I actually think Di Smith is the unsung fashion hero of a country practice. Her I agree. outfits are amazing from the second she's on the show to when she leaves. Molly's look is quirky but Di Smith's look is schmick. It's like Princess Diana, don't you think? Yeah. It really yeah. is very similar to Princess Diana's fashions. Yeah. Lots of big dangly earrings too. Yeah. And gorgeous, like tight waisted things. I love things mm. that are wasted. Oh, love them. So my pick is going to be Esme's purple cardi and dress that mm-hmm. she's wearing when she brings in her yellow roses of friendship for Sophie when Sophie's writing. It actually is the sweetest, cutest outfit and I would very happily mm. wear it today. Mm. And of course... I'd like to talk about Dr. Terence's hair. Of course you would. I think that in this episode, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, at age 46, the brand of silver is absolutely, it's epically perfect mm-hmm. by this stage. But I'd also like to add another fashion, an outside the box fashion, oh. and that's Alex's red Alfa Romeo. That's ah. Maybe James Davin is a big car buff because Joe is driving a little convertible in one of the in episode four Sophie episode four did you Mm -hmm. notice Joe's car that she drives when she pulls up to the um, food van it's this little red pocket rocket I don't know what kind I don't know cars well enough yeah but they're great they all kind of hark back to Simon's car from the beginning of the show he had a red convertible as well somebody loves a red convertible but that little I love that little Alfa Romeo so I'd like to nominate that as a fashion of the field as well, Kim. Love it. Well, we'll pop all of those pics on our Facebook page, A Country Podcast. Yes. And I'm on Twitter as at Melanie Tate. And I'm at Kim Lester. Next week, speaking of Alex, we, as I said, we'll chat to Di Smith and we'll look at her character's departure of Wandon Valley. Season nine, episodes 15 and 16, Last Summer of Wine. 
Our thanks to composer Nate Edmondson for riffing on the original ACP theme by Mike Pajanic. I also want to thank Aaron Miller, whose articles are constantly on the A Country Practice fans page and the A Country Practice articles page are constantly helping us out with our research. Also, Kim, I didn't tell you this. How Mm. cool is this? I messaged with John Tarrant, who played Matt on A Country Practice, and he said he loves our podcast. (gasps) Hey, John. Do you want me to get the actual quote? Because he might not have said loved. Yeah, he might not have said loved. Hang on a sec. I better just get the actual quote, Kim. I wonder if he's listened to our bonus episode where we basically accuse him of being (laughs) (laughs) sexual harassing sleaze. Not John, the character. The character. Oh, no, no, no. He didn't say he loved it, Kim. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We better take that back then. He says, I'm a fan of your podcast with a thumbs up. Oh, well, that means love. That's love. All of our fans love us. That's love. Until next time, Kim. Stay off the smack. (laughs) That is 100% happening because of these episodes and Go Ask Alice by Anonymous. We did have that. The Blesters had that book. (laughs) (laughs) My mother had this fantastic idea that we would have 15 minutes added to our bedtime every year that we got older. And that meant 15 minutes more of a country practice. So I remember very clearly when I could only watch the first 15 minutes from 7.30 to 7.45, you couldn't keep up properly. Then when I turned that next year older, I got half an episode and it was so much better because I could at least know what was going to happen throughout the the week. And then by the time I got to 8.30, it was like I was so addicted to this program because I felt like it was a really important part of my growing up.